Greetings and welcome, everyone, once again to Author in the Room, a monthly program sponsored by JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. My name is Dr. Chuck Kylo, and I'll be your host for today's call. We're delighted that you could join us. As you know, Author in the Room calls are designed to translate new knowledge of what is published in a recent JAMA article into actionable steps that can improve clinical practice and patient care. Author in the Room occurs on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time, and the next call will be on October 21st uh, at that time. The article will be Post-Licensure Safety Surveillance for Quadrivalent Human Papilloma uh, Recombinant uh, Vaccine by Dr. Barbara Slade. So we look forward to having you join us at that time for that call. Several organizations have made Author in the Room a regular part of their learning experience, and we certainly encourage you to do so as well. Today, our featured author is Dr. Thomas Gallagher, uh, first author, actually only author, on the paper, A 62-Year-Old Woman with Skin Cancer Who Experienced Wrong Site Surgery, Review of Medical Error. And participating on the call today, although not an author on this particular paper, is Dr. Sigal Bell. Uh, Welcome, Tom, and welcome, Sigal. Thank you. It's great to be here. Good to have you. Uh, Dr. Gallagher is a general internist, and he is an associate professor in the Department of Medicine and Medical History and Ethics at the University of Washington. He received his degree from Harvard University and completed his residency in internal medicine at Barnes Hospital and Washington University in St. Louis, where I am very proud to say that he was a resident when I was a chief resident in that program. So Tom and I go back a ways. Uh, he completed, subsequently completed a fellowship at the Robert Wood Johnson Clinical Scholars Program at UCSF. Dr. Gallagher has a long-standing research interest in the ethical and communication dimension, dimensions of conflicts of interest, research ethics, and disclosure of medical errors and adverse events. Uh, Dr. Sigal Bell is an associate, an assistant professor in medicine at Harvard Medical School and is a member of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. Her academic interests uh, focus on fostering humanism and patient care through the study of medical culture, the patient experience, and improving communication after harmful events. So we're delighted to have both Sigal and uh, Tom join us today. Um, As the moderator of this call, it's my job to help us focus the discussion on using uh, this content. In this case, it's not per se a research paper, but this review uh, with the goal of driving improvements in our practices. Here's how the hour will proceed. Uh, Dr. Gallagher and Dr. Bell will provide an overview of the subject matter for approximately 15 minutes, summarizing uh, the literature on errors. Uh, particularly focusing on issues of transparency and disclosure. Uh, After that, we will move to your uh, uh, questions and comments. I want to stress how important your participation is in these calls. It's a great forum in which to get clarification on anything in the article itself by hearing directly from the lead author and to contemplate with others the significance of these findings and the steps you might take to use this information towards the improvement of care. Your participation, not only in terms of questions, but offering of your experiences in this area will be very helpful to the call. There are a large number of uh, phone lines uh, connected to the call today, generally with several individuals participating per line. Some members of the media may be present on today's call on a background basis all uh, only. One other note, this call is being recorded and will be made available on both the IHI and JAMA uh, websites 
Complete details can be found under the program section of IHI.org, and prior author in the room calls are available there as well. So with that introduction, let's get started. Once again, let me introduce Drs. Thomas Gallagher and Sigal Bell. Tom? Well, thank, thank you, Chuck. And we, I've really been looking forward to this call for a, a long time because we're, we're seeing some exciting transformations take place uh, in the field of medical error and particularly how we communicate with patients after errors. So I'm really looking forward to hearing uh, comments and experiences from the audience uh, about sort of what they see as happening and strategies they're using to have these difficult conversations with patients. I think all of us know how important communication is with patients. It helps us establish relationships with them, promotes shared decision-making, supports their emotions. Communication is clearly a skill that we can improve. Uh, and it's also clear that poor communication is linked to patient dissatisfaction and to litigation. Good communication, on the other hand, is something that can help avoid problems in patients' care. Good communication is equally important after problems in patients' care, which is the focus of the, the article today. And we're seeing major transformations in the profession's approach to communicating with patients after adverse events and errors, moving from a deny and defend approach to one of much more openness. I think all of us aspire to be transparent, but at present there, this appears to be uh, the exception rather than the norm. Some people have suggested uh, that this gap between expectations for disclosure uh, and current practice reflects mostly a, a lack of moral courage on the part of physicians. We know what the right thing is to do, but we can't quite pull it off. I would really disagree with that assertion. I think for the most part, uh, lack of disclosure represents a deficiency not of character, but rather of communication skills. Uh, and with that in mind, there are several practical things I think both healthcare workers and hospitals can do to help improve disclosure. And I thought I would just mention these up front so that you can keep them in mind during the call. I think physicians need to learn. We need to improve our knowledge base both about patients' preferences for disclosure, uh, about the relationship between disclosure and litigation, and I think we need to learn more about what are the local resources available to help you with disclosure, both at the hospital and potentially at your malpractice carrier. And then secondly, in addition to improving our knowledge base, I think as clinicians we need to practice. We need to practice our disclosure skills and get better at this. Institutions have practical things they can do as well, and these focus around creating what we call a disclosure support system, which includes training coaches to help with disclosures in the moment, providing uh, emotional support to healthcare workers after errors, and then starting to apply performance and to improvement tools to the actual disclosure process itself. So I want to circle back and talk about the article for just a minute. The article describes the case of Ms. W, who was a 62-year-old female who experienced wrong-site dermatologic surgery. She had surgery on a squamous cell cancer on her nose. Uh, and when she took the bandages off, she immediately realized that the surgery had been performed on an area to the right of the actual lesion. Um, she believed that the surgical team mismarked the surgical site uh, and that she would have identified this mistake had she been giving it a mirror uh, in the operating room. 
This was an event that was terribly upsetting to her, and her anger and broken trust were compounded by the fact that she had experienced a previous very serious untoward event uh, after an elective procedure 10 years ago. When she brought the current mistake to the attention of the surgeon in the hospital, she re received prompt apologies from several individuals, uh, which she described as being very helpful to her. She wanted compensation, but was unsure exactly what it was that she wanted. So I think the case highlights a number of important issues. First, we know that adverse events and errors are both relatively common. Uh, but what's interesting is that in some areas, such as central line infections, uh, the rate of these events seems to be in decreasing. And in fact, some organizations have uh, reported that they've been able to nearly eliminate central line infections. This was what led uh, safety expert Lucian Leap to suggest uh, that we might start to use perfection as a benchmark. Um, this is not so for wrong site surgeries, which, though they are relatively rare, it's been more difficult to prevent than one would think, uh, despite major, major initiatives that have been undertaken to reduce these sorts of events. We also know that the current approach to disclosure has some real limitations. So after these events, patients are very clear about what they want. They want someone to tell them what happened, provide some information about the cause of the event and plans for preventing recurrences, uh, and offer an apology. Uh, patients expect that these conversations may take several sittings, so they see of disclosure as really a process rather than a single event. It's equally clear that in healthcare we're struggling to meet these expectations. Some surveys estimate that only a third of harmful errors are disclosed to patients. Fear of litigation is a real barrier to disclosure, but I think one mistake the profession has made is that it's focused on this litigation issue uh, to the extent that it has obscured more important barriers, uh, and we lay out some of those barriers in Table 1. Uh, for physicians, some of these additional important barriers in, con include uh, concern that disclosure might not be helpful to the patient, a real sense of shame and embarrassment around the error, and lack of confidence in their communication skills. The additional barriers for institutions include the concern that clinicians aren't going to be skilled enough in disclosure. Uh, many institutions are not aware of the shortcomings in how disclosures are currently being carried out. And they have the perception that disclosure is really essentially a risk management activity rather than an integral part of, of patient safety and quality activities. The table also highlights some potential solutions to those barriers that we can talk about a little bit uh, later if you're interested. This issue of the relationship between disclosure and litigation has generated uh, and continues to generate considerable controversy. I think the bottom line from my perspective is that disclosure has significant potential to reduce litigation, but I think some people have almost implied that this is a magic bullet, which it is not. It's likely to be beneficial in the vast majority of cases as it relates to litigation, but there will be individual cases where disclosure stimulates or at least fails to prevent litigation. So 
when you think about innovations and new developments in this area, there are a couple I wanted to draw to your attention. Several organizations are starting to integrate disclosure with offers of compensation. Uh, the patient in this case, as I mentioned, was interested in compensation, so really wasn't sure exactly what that meant to her or how much compensation would be appropriate. Those organizations that are starting to couple disclosure with offers of compensation are appearing both in academic medical centers uh, and the University of Michigan uh, Medical Centers program is a perfect example of a really innovative one, uh, as well as private practice settings. Uh, and these programs are reporting very positive outcomes in terms of the number of claims they're dealing with, the time it takes to resolve those claims, uh, and legal expenses. So this is clearly an area that merits kind of careful watching uh, over the next few years to really understand what are the relative roles of disclosure and compensation in resolving uh, and responding to these events. I think a second major area of development is that we're seeing a growing recognition that disclosure is an, is an institutional responsibility. You know, we used to think of disclosure really as the sole province of the attending physician. I think now people recognize it's really up to institutions to provide the training and support to ensure that patients consistently experience really high-quality disclosures. This institutional responsibility, I think, includes the recognition that disclosure is a team sport, meaning that everyone on the healthcare team needs to be involved in at least the discussion of the event and the planning for the disclosure, if not the actual conversation with the patient themselves. Institutions also need to start applying performance improvement tools to the disclosure process itself. And this, I imagine, is likely to be a major development over the next few years. You know, it's second nature to those of us who work in areas of quality that the first step in improving any process is really developing measures so you can accurately understand what's currently happening. And I really am not aware of any institutions yet, although this is starting to develop, that really have measures in place even for things like uh, how frequently events are disclosed, what proportion of their staff have been trained, but even more importantly, after a disclosure has happened, starting to track patient and provider assessments of the quality of those disclosures. And this is information that really could be invaluable uh, as we start to, to look for ways to enhance the disclosure process. Well, another important and underdeveloped area uh, is support for healthcare workers after errors. Uh, and I was hoping that uh, Dr. Bell would comment for a moment uh, about some of the developments that, that she's seeing in this important area. Sure. Thanks so much, Tom. Well, you know, clinicians who have been involved in error have been called the so-called second victim. And I think this is a term that recognizes that the adverse event also has adverse effects on the clinician as well. While we've understandably been focusing on the important aspects of adverse events for patients, in fact, clinicians may experience a very similar set of debilitating emotions following harmful events. And these include things like tremendous guilt, fear, and profound isolation. Clinicians who are involved in our worry about the patient's well-being, and in addition to that, worry about fractured trust, their reputation with colleagues as well as with the patient and the family, their job, their license, the possibility of a future lawsuit, 
and what this means for their future in general. Traditionally, the view of both society and medical culture itself, interestingly, has been that doctors don't make mistakes. And so when this does happen, I think it results in a tremendous amount of shame and also leaves the doctor with a fundamental feeling that they have failed the patient in a very primary way. Doctors were expected to deal with this on their own and move on, and I think what we're seeing now is a movement to try to help physicians cope with this type of issue. It's not uncommon to hear clinicians in the aftermath of harm describe sort of this haunting feeling that hangs over them, thinking again and again about the case, did I do something inappropriate or wrong? And this can even happen when it's uncertain whether an error has occurred. They wrestle with this demon and often suffer alone, agonizing whether to tell someone about what happened. Regardless of whether the error actually leads to litigation, the effects on the clinician can be profound. Some even leave their practice or certain elements of their practice, for example, an OBGYN who leaves OB because of a bad outcome. Things can get worse, of course, where litigation is involved given the secrecy with which error becomes shrouded and the new constraints on whom the clinician can talk to about the event. Because the actual case can take years to come to resolution, it becomes very difficult for the physician to actually move on. It's in the institution's best interest to take care of clinicians harmed by error because the sooner they are cared for, the sooner they can then effectively resume their role of caring for their patients. But here is a clear situation where doctors often cannot heal themselves. So what can institutions do to help doctors? Well, I think there's a few things that are worth outlining in broad strokes. The first is as simple as sort of opening a very safe forum for discussion and providing a clear message to clinicians that they have permission to speak and that, in fact, this is a valued part of the institutional approach to error in a non-punitive environment. It would be important to normalize these discussions and to provide supportive peers as well as the respective senior clinicians. In addition to you know, this type of setup, I think a very active approach in sensitive inquiry can be important because physicians notoriously may not be the first to seek help. Formal counseling may also be desirable and important. The just-in-time coaching that you alluded to, Tom, I think is important in supporting clinicians' emotions as well because the pressure to choose the right words at the time of an adverse event can be so great that some clinicians find themselves uncertain about what language to use and, um, and suffer with stress in that scenario. And I think there's two final aspects to consider. The first is how to handle some healing or reflective time after an error occurs. Perhaps we can take some lessons from other high-stakes industries like law enforcement where sort of timeout for the involved clinician may be quite helpful rather than sort of resuming the next page, the next surgery, the next clinical activity, even in the moments following an error. And the last aspect is having a mindful approach to trainees who have their own unique set of concerns and needs, which include evaluation, dealing with medical hierarchy, and the inherent ethical challenges therein and also suffer considerable emotional distress following mistakes. Early education and outreach can be important ways to help modify the culture, and including trainees as often as possible is important to avoid the type of missed opportunity that Ms. W. described in this case. And finally, I would say an important next step for the profession is to start to establish a greater sense of accountability around disclosure. Uh, when patients experience harmful errors and, and then if the disclosure goes poorly, it just adds insult to injury. Uh, I think we've in healthcare developed a culture 
where limited transparency broadly, uh, but in particular with patients, has sort of become a path of least resistance. Uh, and we need strategies to make sure that high-quality disclosures are the norm and to develop the types of accountability that, that ensures that they take place. So where do we go from here? But I think, again, for clinicians, there are some practical steps that you can take. Uh, I think we really need to learn more about what are patients', patients preferences around disclosure. Uh, I think as we do that, it's going to move us away from this notion of what I would call benevolent deception, uh, this notion that when there's been a harmful error, you know, providing limited to no information for the patient will, will actually be a good thing for them and recognize that even when the information is upsetting or even when it's not clear what the patient is going to do differently after the error, patients really want to hear about errors and expect that this is part of sort of the trusting relationship with their doctors. So learning more about patients' preferences for disclosure, we need to stop focusing on litigation and think about some of the other important barriers and how to overcome them. And then we need to just sort of roll up our sleeves and start to practice our disclosure skills. And fortunately, courses are, uh, are, are becoming available at most institutions actually give clinicians the opportunity, and this is a skill like any other. You just need to practice it and get feedback, uh, as well as take advantage of the resources institutions offer to, to support you sort of in the moment immediately prior to a disclosure. And then for institutions, I, need, I think they need to really recognize and take seriously their responsibility to develop robust disclosure support systems. These include policies and procedures. These include training. It involves making knowledgeable disclosure coaches available to clinicians around the clock to really help in the moment. And then lastly, starting to develop some clear lines of accountability to really help clinicians uh, do this difficult task, uh, do it regularly, and to do it well. So, Chuck, let me pass things back over to you, and I'm eager to hear what the audience thinks about next steps. Fantastic. Great summary, uh, Thomas and all. Really appreciate that. We do now want to turn to uh, what this content means to you in your clinical practice, and we would encourage you again not just to chime in with questions, but to give us your experiences as well. Uh, feel free to share examples of what you may have already been doing in your organization, uh, as well as questions that you may have for either Dr. Gallagher or Dr. Bell. And so I'm going to uh, pass it back to the conference call operator, Tamika, who will give us some instructions as to how to get in the queue for questions or comments. Thank you. The question and the answer session will be conducted electronically. If you would like to ask a question, please do so by pressing star 1 on your touchtone telephone. If you are using a speakerphone, please make sure that your mute function is turned off to allow your signal to reach our equipment. Once again, that is star 1 if you would like to ask a question, and we will pause for just a moment. Great. Uh, well, as we're waiting for people to get into the queue, Tom, I think I'll just kick things off here. Uh, it's an interesting history we have. Uh, the, you know, Lucian Leap's first article, which really kicked off the focus on errors, uh, was in 1994, I believe, in JAMA. We've come a long way since then, but in some ways we haven't come far enough in terms of, uh, uh, of really internalizing the issue of errors, particularly this issue of disclosure to the patients. Uh, and here we are in, uh, in you know, 2009, uh, 15 years later, still talking about this topic. 
it's an, it's an interesting history. When you with your historian hat on, I'm sure you have some interesting reflections in that regard. I think it is interesting, Chuck, and I think it reflects sort of a, a, a primary failure on the part of the medical profession. We really have thought about this challenge of disclosure as really being one of sort of needing to improve clinicians' attitudes and awareness. Uh, we sort of have approached disclosure and the improvement of disclosure through what I would call sort of moral exhortation, trying to remind healthcare workers that this is a duty and a responsibility as professionals. Uh, but our research has suggested that that is not where the gap lies. Healthcare workers are committed to the principle of disclosure. They want to be open and honest. Uh, but they really feel like they lack the skills to do this well and have questions about implementation, basic questions like, should I use the word error? How much information should I say about what happened? You know, is an apology appropriate? And if so, what does that look like? So I think, in fact, the, the, the history suggests that the one problem, at least around disclosure, has been sort of our focus on the wrong thing. It's not about improving attitudes. It's about starting to provide clinicians with the skills. Great. Um, uh, wonderful history. I'm sure we'll get into to more of those issues uh, during the next half an hour. Tamika? And we will take our first question from Verna Gibbs with San Francisco VA Medical Center. If you could please just repeat your name. Uh, also, that would be uh, helpful. We know that uh, the person's name who, who gave their name when they called it may not be the person that's asking the question, so that would be helpful for us. Great. Okay, so my name is uh, Verna Gibbs. I'm a surgeon at um, UCSF and um, at the San Francisco VA Medical Center. And I wanted to, um, I have a question um, and then I have a comment. So I'll tell you the case or story and then I'll tell you the, the question that's related to so this. about this notion of disclosure coaches specifically. I think you alluded to as if there's some army of this potential experts that are out there. And um, I certainly have found in many of the institutions where I'm working and active in patient safety in, in California that there is very little expertise. So I'm wondering where your vision is for this to uh, come from. And um, the nature, I enjoyed very much the last comments about this nature of the failure that moral exhortation doesn't really work. And in your article, actually, or in Tom Gallagher's paper, um, there is a kind of contradiction where you discussed initially that uh, we should begin to view these things as institutional responsibilities, which I strongly, strongly uh, agree with. Yet in the next to last page in the discussion of Ms. W's concerns, you'd say that disclosure is the attending physician's responsibility. The attending physician is legally responsible for the patient's care. And I think that there's a conflict because especially in the realm of the allied health professionals. Uh, medication errors can be related to nursing care. Uh, they can be related to the pharmacist administering the wrong drug in an outpatient setting. It can be the radiologist who gave the wrong contrast. And as an attending surgeon, to be called in to do the disclosure for that uh, feels very wrong, and it feels like there's a too big a burden that's being uh, placed on the shoulders. And then the last comment I'd like to make is, say, a technical issue around the issue, say, specifically of, um, of something that I deal with uh, frequently because it's my patient safety project, which is uh, an issue of retained surgical items. 
And specifically, like if you have a case of a retained needle, a surgical suture needle, which surgeons, I will assure you, if we go into a room, they will just blow up and eat you alive that the notion that they would have to disclose to a patient, say, an incorrect needle count when we don't know whether or not the needle was actually in the patient and whether those concerns are related to liability, related to how are we going to definitively prove whether or not a needle is there, and the most poignant point is whether or not there's a a case of injury. So sometimes institutions want you to disclose everything, and uh, many of the surgeons have said, well, you know, what we disclose has to be left to us, and there's clearly conflict about that. So thank you. Those are, are, are great points, Verna, and I really appreciate uh, you bringing those up, and, and a lot of our research has involved surgeons, uh, and it's been a lot of fun to learn. Surgeons are are uh, are very skilled at the need to talk with patients about complications of care in general. Uh, and so I think you, the surgical community has a lot of important insights on this topic. Um, your question about disclosure coaches, uh, I think it varies a lot from organization to organization. Uh, at some places, like at Harvard, where Seagal is, uh, they actually have gone through the organization and at all 15 or 16 hospitals have trained 10 to 15 people at each of the hospitals to serve as disclosure coaches. Uh, these are oftentimes uh, medical directors, risk managers, nurse managers who get sort of special training in this capacity. Uh, but I think the uptake of that practice across the country has been relatively slow. Uh, but I imagine we're going to see much more of this. Um, um, so I, I think, you know, the, the access to disclosure coaching expertise uh, is likely to really increase over time. Um, this balance between disclosure as an institutional responsibility versus us suggesting in the article that it was the attending physician who should take the lead, you're right to pick up on attention there. Uh, the Australians have been, uh, have a, a large open disclosure uh, uh, initiative underway and did a, a, an interesting pilot of it. There in Australia, the disclosures often are done by sort of administrators or disclosure experts, and the feedback they heard from patients loud and clear was, you know, we want to hear about these events primarily from the clinicians that we know and that were taking care of us. Um, uh, and you're right that sometimes uh, the attending physician isn't the appropriate person to do this, uh, either because uh, it, it wasn't, it was primarily, for example, a nursing error we had a paper out about a year ago looking at the issue of nurses' attitudes about disclosure, uh, and the interprofessional aspects of this are really important. Um, you're also right that sometimes it's a, it's a different physician or it's really a, a system error so broadly that no one individual physician is the one who's sort of responsible. Um, part of this process of collaboration between the institution and the clinician will involve sort of sorting out for an individual case who's the most appropriate one to go forward with the a disclosure. My preference is when it makes sense for the clinician who knows the patient the best to be doing this. But I think you're right to point out that sometimes that may not be the most appropriate. And this issue of retained surgical items, uh, I've I spent a lot of time chatting with surgeons about this issue, and you're right that I've had my ear chewed off more than once when surgeons have thought that I was implying that 
uh, if a sponge count is incorrect or a, an instrument has, may or may not have been retained, that these should be all disclosed as errors that the attending surgeon is personally responsible for. Uh, and oftentimes these are system breakdowns. They may have been an adverse event but weren't an error. I think the most important thing here, when we look at breakdowns in disclosure, oftentimes they happen because an individual provider has sort of gone and done a disclosure on their own and hasn't sought out the institutional resources available to help them really think carefully about what was it that happened, really do a careful analysis of the event and decide, you know, was there an error or not? If so, how are we going to share this with the patient? And it's during those conversations that some of these important issues of error versus no error, responsibility, accountability, how do we frame that with the patient, can get sorted out. Thanks. Really great question. Appreciate that. Thank you. Moving on, we'll take our next question from Bridget O'Hare with Banner Health. Hello, my name is Bridget O'Hare, and I'm the Root Cause Analysis Program Director for Banner Health. And I, as a human factors engineer, I have worked with the 22 facilities in the seven states on their analysis of events. Um, in 2008, so we have about a year and a half of experience so far, we've been tracking disclosure. And um, as part of our criteria, it was actually a strategic initiative to evaluate the success of the root cause analysis that were performed. And one of those metrics that um, the hospitals were evaluated on was whether or not disclosure was performed and whether or not it was documented in the medical record. And having that as a, as a criteria for the root cause analysis did seem to improve um, the disclosure um, actually taking place and even the awareness of uh, disclosure and its importance. And we are going through a system-wide um, policy um, renewal, I guess, and um, developing some tools in our toolkit for dissemination. Um, but it has um, really caused us to look at a lot of the things that you've discussed today, so I really appreciate it, especially the issue of responsibility and um, both in legal terms and institutional um, terms. Thank you for sharing that, Bridget. And it's a great example of strategies organizations can use to start to promote accountability around disclosure. You know, it's interesting to me that when you look at most organizations now are doing safety culture or safety climate surveys. Uh, and those surveys ask a variety of questions about transparency, but I'm not aware of any of them that ask about disclosure to the patient. And I don't think that that's an accident. I think that people have been concerned that if we ask questions about disclosure on safety culture surveys, or for example, if we put a question about disclosure in an event reporting system, so when you enter an online event, it queries you, has this been disclosed or not? I think institutions have worried that this is going to stimulate disclosures in ways they can't control and it's going to be a real problem. So it's a great example, Bridget, of a way, uh, the way that one organization has uh, sort of started to embed some accountability and, and how that's been a positive thing for you. One next step might be to start asking patients who have experienced disclosures, how did that go from your perspective? We've done some pilot work measuring the quality of actual disclosures. 
uh, and it's fascinating what you see. It won't surprise many of you in the audience. The clinicians think the disclosures all go great, uh, and some of the patients agree, uh, but a sizable portion of patients really feel like the disclosure didn't go well. The clinicians were totally unaware. You can imagine that that sort of a mismatch is really a recipe for problems down the road. Well, that's really helpful. That is one of the next steps that we were going to apply is a survey of the disclosure that was performed. The issue that we're struggling with is the timing of that survey. You know, when is the right time for a patient um, and or family that has experienced that error? So I don't know if you have experience with timing with that. Um, one of one of the reasons I think it's so much fun to work together with folks on this is that there are important unanswered questions, and that's a perfect example of one of them. Uh, the pilot work that we did involved surveying patients a while after the disclosure. Um, uh, and as you know, disclosure is a process that evolves over the course of, you know, days, weeks, occasionally months, although you hate it to take that long. Um, uh, so you'd like the, the evaluation of disclosure to happen kind of when the disclosure process was done. Uh, uh, but, you know, uh, uh, balancing that against wanting to get accurate information that, you know, memories fade with time is a little bit of a trade-off. I would say that there are places like University of Illinois at Chicago also has some great stuff going on around disclosure and uh, a transparency. Every time they have an event like this, the patient gets assigned a liaison who basically is the patient's single point of contact and proactively reaches out to that patient during their hospital stay and then afterwards, as much as a year after the event, uh, checking in with the patient, do you have questions, how can I help you? That sort of longitudinal follow-up with patients can be extremely helpful. Oftentimes they hear new concerns coming up from the patient significantly meaning a year after the event happened. Uh, uh, but I think patients find that type of longitudinal contact invaluable. I think lots of organizations, that notion sort of scares them. You know, we'd like the disclosure to just be over with and move on, and we worry that checking back in with the patient will just bring up bad memories. Patient seat is exactly the opposite. A really, really wonderful issue that you brought up. Let's move on to the next uh, comment or question. And once again, as a reminder, that is star one to ask a question. We'll go next to Susan Baker with MPS. Thank you, Dr. Gallagher. I, I really enjoyed reading your excellent article, and I appreciate both your and Dr. Bell's time today. Um, my name is Susan Keen Baker, and I'm the author of a guide that's uh, titled "I'm Sorry to Hear That: Real Life Responses to Patients' Most Common Complaints About Healthcare." And the question I have about your piece is that you have a statement that says that to, to say "I am sorry that this happened" does not constitute an effective apology. And I'm hoping um, that you might clarify: Do you mean that only voicing a statement is not effective, or do you feel the statement, I am sorry that this happened, is ineffective. And the reason I ask that is because I have found many physicians come into a, you know, a, a first conversation about disclosure and they say, look, I'm not going to say, I, I'm sorry I operated on the wrong part of your face. But they would be willing to say, I'm sorry this happened, and then start to look at what are next steps. You've put your finger on an important issue, and I'm curious to hear Seagal's thoughts about this in just a second, is to what constitutes an effective apology. But part of the point that I was trying to make is 
you know, scholars on apology like Aaron Lazar and Lee Taft and others have really written thoughtfully about what are the components of a truly authentic apology. Uh, and lots of people would say that at something, saying something like, I'm sorry this happened to you, doesn't constitute an apology. And it, it's an expression of regret, but it doesn't have those kind of key components of an effective apology, including an explanation, an expression of remorse, you know, contrition, making amends, those sorts of things. Uh, or as Lee, Lee Taft has put it, sort of calling it a fault-admitting apology. You're right that clinicians are hesitant to do that and feel more comfortable uh, with an expression of regret. I think we have a lot yet to learn about what constitutes an, ex an effective apology from the patient's perspective. Uh, and I think that, as we mentioned in the article, has part to do with the words that the doctor or other provider conveys. But even more importantly, I think it has to do with the patient's perception of whether that was sincere. Some of that is the nonverbal and verbal communication. I think a lot of it has to do with do the actions subsequent to that by the provider and the organization really uh, uh, reinforce the notion that they truly are sorry about what happened. Uh, so I think patients judge the sincerity of apology in, in, in complicated ways. Um, Sigal, do you have any other thoughts about this issue of authentic apology? I would agree, Tom, and I think it's not a very clear uh, formatted response in terms of if you do numbers one, two, three, four, you know, you will meet the criteria for an effective apology, and there is a very difficult metric to develop in terms of actually gauging empathy, which is really what patients are looking for and tell us that they, you know, they yearn to hear. Someone who can understand us and speak to us in human terms is the type of language that we hear from patients. Um, as, you, as you had mentioned, I think this is likely a combination of language, body language, connection with the patient, and, and a true sense of authenticity. Getting back to um, the point that you made, Susan, about sort of walking into the room and starting off with, um, you know, I'm sorry that this happened, and then maybe later on down the line in the disclosure process being willing to take on more accountability, which is also a component that patients are often looking for, that, you know, can be determined as a root cause analysis goes underway if, in, in fact, the accountability is appropriate to the person who's delivering that apology. And, and the last thing that I would say is that um, I think we're in an interesting time. One of the first callers, I think it was Verna, commented about basically the struggle between systems issues and, and individual, you know, uh, causality behind error. And more and more I wonder myself whether we're moving from an I'm sorry to a we're sorry. And, um, in fact, the language around that may change somewhat as we, you know, embrace more of the systems components to error. Thank you. So I, I would agree that, you know, I've encountered lots of many very senior experienced clinicians who have told me I'm more than happy to tell the patient what happened, but I really feel uncomfortable saying I'm sorry. And I've struggled a little bit to understand where that discomfort comes from. Uh, I think it harkens back in part uh, uh, to some of what Seagal was talking about earlier about the emotional impact of errors on clinicians. I think it, you know, to say I'm sorry really means, you know, coming face-to-face -face with your role in the event and the harm that's been caused. Uh, and that's very painful to do. Um, uh, and, and so I think as we get better at supporting clinicians uh, in the disclosure process, uh, as we're able to give them better coaching, 
Uh, some of that coaching and support is about the things to say, but some of that is the emotional support that allows them to sort of be in a position where disclosures can be really truly patient-centered. And I think disclosure and apology in many ways are an incredible sort of institutional test of patient-centeredness because if there's anything that sort of is going to knock our focus away from the patient, it's having a serious harmful error take place because it's so natural for the focus to turn inwards and to, and to think as providers and institutions, how does this affect us? Uh, and for the patient's interests to recede into the background. Uh, and hopefully as we get better at disclosure and apology, supporting healthcare workers in this process, we can get to a place where kind of patient-centeredness around disclosure is, is the key metric we follow. Hmm. Really, uh, really rich topic. There's so many angles to this subject. Uh, we could go on for a long time, and, and, and we should. Uh, I reflect back in conversations like this to, and, and uh, part of my question is this issue of the, of the psychology that we experience, whether it is more of a catharsis to hold this information in or to get it out. And uh, when we were in residency, Tom, this is probably before you got to, to uh, uh, Washington Barnes, I think I was a first or second year resident, and I almost killed somebody. And uh, the, the individual happened to know my father. Uh, my father was his, his insurance agent, of all things. And he came in with hyperkalemia. And being a dutiful resident, I told the nurse to give him uh, insulin and glucose. And uh, I, 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 I think I said subcutaneous insulin. She gave it intravenously. And uh, the, the individual became pretty profoundly hypoglycemic, and uh, we sent him off to the ICU and got a central line in him. And I, uh, I was pretty forthright with him at that time. I, I, I pretty much told him that I almost killed him, and here's why, and here's how I almost, I almost killed him. He was, um, we ended up joking about it later on. He, he was completely forgiving. But to me, that, that was a very early experience in the catharsis of openness, that it doesn't do any good to hold it in. Uh, and it would have caused me probably a lot more angst to, to have held it in than to be quite forthright with him about how that how that happened. And this, these were before the days when error was, was even something we talked about. This is in the late 80s. So I, I wonder about that catharsis, that, that actual the therapeutic effect of articulating it to the individual that we almost harmed or that we did harm. I think you're right. It, it, it is an important sort of disclosure and apology are important both for the provider and for the patient. I agree that this is really complex. Um, uh, I was giving a presentation a while ago, and, and someone came up to me afterwards describing a, an error that they had made in their disclosure, and they said, I kept saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, over and over again until the patient finally forgave me. And I wasn't going to stop until the patient said that. Uh, and then the, the person had a look on their face sort of like, maybe I was going a little bit too far. Uh, and I wonder a lot in this area, you know, it's nice when the patient sort of forgives the provider, but if we're really approaching this in a patient-centered way, I don't think that that's necessarily reasonable to ask of the patient. I think the emotional support for the provider shouldn't come from the patient. It should come from the institution. Uh, and I think it's a misconception that providers sometimes have that after a disclosure, Somehow the patient, they have unrealistic expectations for how these conversations are going to go, and they hope that if they tell the patient what happened and say how sorry they are, the patient will somehow be happy or thank them or something, 
And I think that, the, you know, the realistic kind of, you know, uh, the, the reality of it is after a serious event, even though you've disclosed it well, the patient may be justifiably still incredibly angry at you and at the institution. Um, uh, so I think we need to think carefully about what is the emotional impact of disclosure both on the provider and the patient. What are our expectations for the patient in terms of supporting the provider? Uh, and then what are our expectations for, you know, the process of rebuilding this relationship with the patient, which is going to occur over a, a period of time? Gall, any other thoughts that you have on this issue of kind of catharsis after disclosure? Yeah, uh, thanks, Tom, and I'm, I'm so glad you brought up the, the example, Chuck, um, notable actually, particularly as you were a trainee during that time, and um, we know that those trainees don't disclose errors similar to patterns that we see in attendings, but um, what I wanted to reflect back on was actually the example that was brought up regarding some of the data from Australia and using administrators in this role, because it gets at exactly this issue of missing out on that potential healing effect for the person who's actually involved in the error. And I do think that that is a very important part in healing, um, both for the patient and for the provider. The other concept that sort of came to mind as I was um, listening to, to your discussion, Tom, is the notion of forgiveness and how do we actually arrive at forgiveness. And I like to think of this almost as an emergent property the, the constituents of which are not exactly the same in any given scenario. It might include things like coming to a shared understanding or rebuilding trust, or for some patients it might involve compensation or other things, but it, the, the very point is that it's different for each person and that we may not always arrive at that place, although it's obviously our, our goal from the outset. Question or comment? And we will take our next question from Napoleon Knight with Carl Foundation Hospital. Hi, my name is uh, Napoleon Knight at my hospital. I'm the Vice President of Medical Affairs. And I just wanted to share that we've been doing uh, patient you know, disclosure for um, several years now in, in our institution. You know, we found it, you know, quite valuable. I wanted to, you know, speak to, you know, the point of the, you know, emotional impact and the catharsis. At least at our institution, you know, what we've seen is that the practitioners, you know, that are involved um, in disclosure, you know, have found it um, useful and I guess liberating might be a good word um, to use because in my experience before disclosure, what I found is that people would walk around with what appeared to be pent-up guilt, sleepless nights, you know, for days, weeks, months, or years um, because they hadn't taken the opportunity um, to 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 um, talk with the patients um, in this way. I think the other thing that's very important that was touched on, I think, is the issue of, of coaching. Um, I, I, it can't be understated that when people are going to do disclosures, you know, that you have to, you know, coach them and, and, and teach them along the way because it certainly is not something that people are taught to do. We actually, once a year, for new positions that are coming into our organization, have a disclosure course where we actually spend um, several hours um, going through scenarios, you know, to help them become more comfortable, uh, actually allow them to do role-playing, um, and then 
um, if something like this happens down the line, you know, they're linked with someone in the administration, they're linked with someone in their in risk management, um, and they're supported, you know, when they go forward um, to do the disclosures. And, and what we found um, is that, you know, we've, you know, had probably um, on balance less, you know, in the way of, of, of dollars, you know, that we've spent on um, uh, settlements, etc. We certainly have retained trust uh, of many uh, individuals who may have been involved um, in these activities, um, and for us, we found it to be a, a beneficial um, and important part, you know, of the care that we provide to patients. I, I appreciate you sharing that, Napoleon, and I think that you know what I want to leave people with. You've been hearing a lot about the positive effect that disclosures can have on patients and on providers. I think the fundamental shift that needs to happen at organizations and throughout the profession is for disclosure to be recognized, not just for the positive effect it has on patients and providers, and that's an important effect, but for really for people to really start to recognize disclosure as a critical quality and safety activity. Uh, and by that I mean organizations that really are excelling in disclosure, that has an effect on quality in several def different ways. I think the focus on disclosure promotes transparency in other domains, so you can expect better event reporting. The, the conversation with the patient that's a part of disclosure oftentimes brings uh, issues around the causation of the event to the surface that you wouldn't have known before and actually leads to uh, a better error analysis and prevention plans. But I think even more importantly, disclosure just contributes to an overall positive culture of safety. We, we really ought to be focusing on what are the quality improvement implications of disclosure and how do we take advantage of them. That's why I think an organization like IHI with its really rich history in the area of improvement uh, is a great organization to help move this forward uh, and to help us start to bridge that gap uh, between our commitment and attitudes and what's actually happening in practice. We're, we're making some exciting progress, but we have a long ways to go. Really appreciate that, Tom. Right here at the end, um, one more question that I have. You've talked a couple times about patient preferences. This may not be a short, uh, short answer, unfortunately. Patient preferences around errors, and I don't quite get that. I mean, I'm assuming that that people want to be informed, that nobody's going to choose to say, don't don't tell me. Maybe they would. What, what exactly do you mean by patient preferences around uh, disclosure? So there is a body of research that's basically asked patients about their attitudes. What, what sort of information would they like after an error? Uh, and that information breaks out into several quick categories. So they want to know that there's been an adverse event or error, and then some specific pieces of information, uh, why it happened, prevention plans, they want an apology. So some of the literature has been oriented at, at measuring what do patients want uh, after these events. Uh, but you're right to point out that this is a, a literature that needs a lot of development. Much of that work has been done with uh, patients who are not ill or who haven't experienced an error. We know very little about how Patients' preferences for disclosure vary in different cultural groups or across different illness conditions. Patients' preferences for the amount of healthcare information they want 
and their role in decision-making we know really varies across different patient groups uh, and in different settings. We don't yet know how those preferences for more information or less information apply to the disclosure setting. I can give you one concrete example of that that I experienced recently. I had a surgical colleague stop me in the hall the other day and tell me about uh, a surgery where they inadvertently nicked the patient's bowel during the operation. Uh, they sewed it up, uh, repaired it, and his question to me was, do I need to tell the patient that this has happened? But one of the answers to that it is it would be nice to know more about this individual patient's preferences. Is this the type of information that they would want? Or since the patient problem has been fixed for the most part, you think, is that information that, that they wouldn't want to hear? I think it's that type of uh, information that w will help us over time make the disclosure process more patient-centered, both understanding how do patients' preferences and attitudes about disclosure vary across large groups, but then how do we make disclosure more patient-centered for an individual? Well, I really appreciate that. And again, we could go on. We're at the top of the hour, and unfortunately, it's time to call it to a close. I really appreciate you, Dr. Tom Gallagher, and you, Dr. Seagal Bell, for joining us in today's discussion. As a reminder, Author in the Room is a monthly program that takes place on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time, 11 o'clock a.m. Uh, Pacific Time, for those of us who live on, live on the West Coast. Our next discussion will take place on October 21st, uh, and the article is Post-Licensure Safety Surveillance for Quadrivalent Human Papilloma Recombinant Vaccine by Dr. Barbara Sling, which appeared in the August 19, 2009 issue of JAMA. Sponsored by both the Journal of the American Medical Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, Author in the Room is an interactive conference call designed to accelerate changes that can improve clinical care. Thanks to all of you for being a part of today's Author in the Room, and good day.